0: Amen. We have gathered this morning to praise Jesus, the one who gave himself for us and accomplished our salvation. We rejoice in the fact that it's done and that it's not in jeopardy. So let's go to the Lord now and pray. Let's ask him for his help as we now look to his word. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would come and be with us now by your Holy Spirit. We are in need of your help. And we know that we can't do anything good spiritually for ourselves unless you show up. And so we ask you to do that now as we look to your word. We know, God, that we need to hear from you about what you have done, not fundamentally what we must do. Father, remind us powerfully of what you have accomplished for your people through your son. We pray that we would be encouraged. That we would take heart, even in the face of struggle, as we consider what Jesus has done for us, his people. We pray the gospel would be clear, that it would compel us to live for you. And we pray for your help now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I wish my wife was was sitting in here, she's in child care today, because she would probably be half laughing at what I'm about to say, half like eyes rolling out of her head maybe. Uh, I love music. You guys know that. I think most people do. But I am definitely one of those people that when I hear a new song that I like, I will wear it out. Will absolutely like drive people crazy sometimes. I try to be considerate. But as soon as I get in my truck, you know, and it's just me, I shamelessly will play the same song on loop over and over and over again. And then eventually, you know, some sanity will come in and I will work that particular song into a playlist or something and and put it on more of a rotation than just on repeat. I trust many of you, I've seen some nods, seen some looks of judgment. Hey, it's okay. There are at least a few in the room who are tracking with me and can resonate with what I'm saying about music. Putting it on repeat. Well, I think as I was... wrestling this week with this text again and, and preparing for this morning's sermon I am very aware in this letter that Paul has written to the Galatian Christians and I'm very aware as we're making our way through this book that sermon after sermon after sermon is about the gospel it is about the nature of the gospel So we've got as a church right now, we've got the gospel and what it is and what Jesus has done for us on repeat. And I don't know about you, that's cool with me. Like I'm not tired of it. I hope that you feel the same way. Here we are again today in Paul's letter to the Galatians considering the nature of the gospel. And I I think I'm I'm sensing this from you. I, I know this is true for me. I, I want to remind myself that this is true, that I can never hear the gospel enough. Amen. Never. That's an impossibility. See, Christians, we, we should not, anyway, ever tire of hearing the gospel or ever tire of dealing with the gospel. We need this. because So it's easy, even in a church like this, where we aim to be so gospel-driven and grace-driven, it's so easy for us to become deluded by our own goodness or become obsessed with our own growth or maturity or whatever it is. Good things, maybe. But that can take us to places where we forget that our life is only and always in Jesus Christ. Our life is only and always found in Christ's righteousness and Him crucified. And so I think it's a great thing that we get to keep staring at the Gospel so explicitly. The Gospel permeates the Bible. Any sermon preached without the message of Christ crucified for sinners, the plan of redemption that God is accomplishing through His Son is no Gospel sermon. It's not a Christian sermon at all. That's true. But then sometimes we get the privilege of Deeping ourselves in the gospel. So I pray for us that we never have the attitude like, oh man, okay, here we go again with the gospel. Or an attitude of like, okay, bro, like, yeah, we've got that, we've dealt with that, let's move on now to something else. I pray that would never be for us. So if you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. Open them up to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to be looking today primarily at Galatians 2 verses 17 through 21. I probably will begin reading here in just a moment in verse 15, just because that will give us some good context in terms of where we find ourselves today. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, I think we're going to do our best to get the verses on the screen up here so that you can be served by that. So now that you've had time to flip, I want to read God's word for us, beginning in Galatians 2 and verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, For no purpose. Amen. Thanks be to God for His Word. I have an outline for us today that is not the most clever. But since I prefer clarity to cuteness, I'm okay with that. I pray that you are too. And I'm going to try to repeat these headings and say them slowly enough so that you can get them. You can write them down even if you want because this is one of those outlines, it's a little, long, the headings are longer, but if you write these three headings down that I'm going to give you, I think you'll understand this passage, and that's a good thing. So these are kind of handles to hang on to. So we're going to go right in. The first of three headings as we make our way from verse 17 through 21 is this, sin does not come through Christ, but by returning to the law. Sin does not come through Christ, but by returning to the law. So we're going to look now at verses 17 and 18 for just a moment. You can put your eyes there. In the context of what Paul is saying, you remember confrontation with Peter. The issue is how are men justified, declared righteous before God. He has declared that even Jewish believers have trusted Christ for their salvation. Not even the Jews, let alone the Gentiles, could ever be justified by works of the law. So here we go. Paul in verse 17 says, But if in our endeavor, and by our we would again understand him to be talking about Jewish people, Jewish believers, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. And that's not like what we might be. This is more rhetorically we, we are. Right? In this context, Paul and Peter are both sinners. And the Jewish Christians thereby are also sinners. So if that's true... In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, if we too are found to be sinners, which we are, is Christ then a servant of sin? Is He a promoter of sin? And He says, certainly not. So then He's going to start arguing and taking us down the flow and train of His thought as to why that's not true. Beginning in verse 18, He says this, For if I rebuild what I tore down... I prove myself to be a transgressor. What does that that mean? In the context of what we're considering here, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, what Christ has accomplished, how men are reconciled to God, we would understand that Jesus came not certainly to promote sin, but that Jesus came to destroy sin. Jesus came to destroy false righteousness. Right? He came to explode these false notions of righteousness by keeping the law. Jesus came to accomplish true righteousness and give it, give it to His people. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ tears down sin. The gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul has been proclaiming for years at this point, tears down sin. And so then what Paul is arguing in saying if I rebuild what I tore down, if I were to rebuild false righteousness by returning to the law, if I were to rebuild in that sense sin under the law by returning to the law, then I would prove myself to be a transgressor. I would prove myself to be a sinner. Returning to the law, jettisoning this gospel of justification by faith in Christ would be sin for Paul. He would be wrong for doing that. That's his argument. So would you be wrong for doing that. So would I be wrong for doing that. That's the first heading, friends, and it is by far the shortest. I hope that's clear. I want to just set that up for us because now we're going to get into the next couple of headings that will be longer. So heading number two is this, as we just progress with Paul and his flow of thought. So the first heading was that sin does not come through Christ, but by returning to the law. The second piece is this. In Christ, (laughs) believers died to the law at the cross and now live by faith in Him. I'm going to repeat that again. In Christ, believers died to the law at the cross and now live by faith in Him. Him being Jesus. So... Track with the Apostle Paul here. Jesus is not a promoter of sin. If we were to return to this false premise of righteousness under the law, that would be sin. And he says now in verse 19, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. It is by dying to the law through the law that a life might be lived unto God. And you're like, okay, well, brother, what does that mean? To die to the law through the law. Let's just reason together for a moment. Biblically. God's law requires what? Perfect obedience. It requires perfect righteousness. And the penalty for breaking God's law in any measure is death. Judgment. So to violate God's law... To go your own way and not God's way. The Bible calls sin. And there is only one way to atone for sin. There is only one way to deal with sin and make it right. Make things okay. For justice to be administered in the face of sin. And that is for blood to be shed. A life to be given. So Leviticus 17.11. The Lord says through Moses. The life "...of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life." To atone for sin, life is required. Blood is required. The writer to the Hebrews, New Covenant contexts, makes it plain that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins." Right, that's where Jesus comes in. That's where Jesus comes into this equation. He is our representative. He atones for our sin by the sacrifice of Himself. He sheds His blood in the place of His people. He didn't have any of His own sin that He needed to die for. Because the problem, if let's just say that I as your pastor, loving you, wanted to somehow die for one of you in your place. The problem is that my death can't atone for you because I'm a sinner. And so I, my death only deals with my sin. But then, with Jesus, that's entirely different. He is truly man and He is truly God. He is the eternal God, the Son, taking on human flesh and He is sinless so He can die for sinners. He's a man to die for men. He is sinless to die for sinners because he does not have to pay for his own. So then, by faith, we are taught in Scripture that we are united to Christ. We read about that earlier. We have been united to him in faith. That means a lot. We've talked about that in a number of ways recently. There's a lot that's entailed in that. But part of what that means is that we are united to Jesus in his death. We read that earlier, specifically, that we were united with Christ in a death like his. He stands as our representative, as our substitute, so that for those who are trusting Christ, for those of you this morning who are trusting him, when he died at Calvary, you died too by faith. He died in your place, and you really died with him. It is as though you died. To pay the penalty that you owe the law. Okay, so this is how you are dying under the law through faith in Christ. He represents you, you die in Him in that sense. He paid the penalty for all of His people that we owe for being lawbreakers. And so that's what we mean when we say that Jesus died the death we deserve in our place. We we speak like that. He died the death I deserve. That means that really he paid the penalty that is due to me for the sins that I've committed and for the fact that I am guilty in Adam. It's done. So Christ he takes upon himself our sin or our law breaking, right? He who knew no sin was made to be sin. Right? In order that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's what Paul's saying here. Jesus became a lawbreaker, so to speak. He did. He became a lawbreaker when He took our sin upon Himself, and then in representing His people, He died our death. So there is no death to the law left for you to die. It's done. So that's what Paul means that through the law, under the law, I died to the law. If you are in Christ, you are dead to the law in that sense because your debt is paid and it's done. So he's going to go on with this argument though. And I realize that this is kind of like, all right, we're having to try to really wrestle and track. And that's good for us to do sometimes, to engage with the text. So then in verse 20, you see he continues his flow of thought. And those verse numbers were not there in the original. Right, he literally would have said, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. That's what we're considering. By faith, as my representative, he was crucified and I died in him. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul... Again, he's arguing, is Jesus a promoter of sin? By no means is He a promoter of sin. I died in Him to the law. I've been set free in that sense from the law so that what? End of verse 19, I might live to God. If we're ever going to live to God, it's only going to happen this way. This gospel reality, this grace-driven reality, this Christ crucified in the place of sinners reality is the way and the only one to live unto God. So far from promoting sin, my goodness, Christ died that we might live as unto the Lord. <clears throat> okay. Paul is reasoning, as we've thought about already, that his his penalty, he's speaking in first-person language, representing us, his penalty was really paid by Jesus at the cross. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14 reads this. These are wonderful verses. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, here we go, by the canceling of the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Your guilt as we really crystal clear. Your guilt under the law that's real, like it's big time real. So is mine. It has been paid in full. It has been finished, particularly by the Lord Jesus Christ. So friend, I, I want to think with you for just a moment about, about what Paul is saying here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Do you see, I think you can see it as well as I do, the very particular specific nature of what Christ accomplished for each and every one of you. What I mean by that is that when Jesus went to Calvary, when He carried the the cross to Calvary, and when, as we've sung in a song recently, when the King who made the sun and the moon and the shining stars let the soldiers hold and nail Him down, He did not just make salvation possible for you. When he stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood, he did not just purchase like general savability for you. He did something that was finished at that moment for you and for me. So, what I'm saying is that in every good way this could be meant, Jesus took names to the cross. Okay, what we're talking about is this thing, let's go ahead and say it, called particular redemption, particular atonement that gets some people worked up, and that's okay. This is what Christ did, it's what he accomplished. If we're going to talk in terms of what did he do on the cross, did he actually do something? Did the death of Christ actually save anyone? The witness of the Scripture, the language of the Apostle Paul, even in this text, is quite clear. You better believe He did something. You better believe He accomplished something, namely your salvation. It was done then. It was not as though Jesus, in dying this horrific death and taking the wrath of God, living a perfect life and then taking His life back up again, it's not just like He built this salvation machine that you and I didn't need to get in and drive. He saved you, and he saved me. Hallelujah, hallelujah, brother. Praise God that he did. So Jesus specifically and effectively, these are important words, specifically and effectively died for his people. That's how Paul can say this, that he took your name, he took your sin, he took your guilt, he took your shame, he took everything, that you have done that has violated the perfect and holy law of God. Took it all. The penalty that you deserve, death, judgment, wrath forever, has been paid really, not hypothetically, really. It's part of the ground of your salvation in mind. And so then Paul (coughs) continues to, to reason on here. The law, because of all that, is no longer... Binding on us because Christ died under the law and in Christ, the law's punishment has been administered and it's over. And he will then say, continuing on in verse 20, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So what he means by that is not that I'm looking at people. It's not that Ron or Stephen or Rob or Kevin or Kayla don't live anymore. It's not what that means. Of course, you're living But what that means is that who you were, your identity in Adam is no longer your identity, right? Your identity is no longer in Adam. Your identity is now in Christ. That's who you are. You are indwelt. You can see this in the text. It's Christ who lives in me. We are indwelt and empowered by the Spirit of Christ. So that when we we see that Christ lives in us, we should understand that the Spirit of Christ lives in us. And the Spirit of Christ is none other than the Holy Spirit who lives in you and me. We are empowered by Him and we are partakers in the righteousness of Christ. That's part of what it means for Him to live in you too. You partake of His righteousness. So the life that we now live in the flesh, just simply meaning now, not that I live in sin or whatever, but I'm still living in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Even there, you see the particular language a price was paid. He gave himself specifically for you. And so this is huge. This is how I now live to God, not through the law not through the written code, but by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So in order to to tie this together and connect things, and I think it's always a good idea to interpret Scripture with Scripture, I'm going to have you turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. I just want to read these verses for us briefly because I think this connects what we've just been considering in Galatians, I think this makes it crystal clear. We're going to look at the first six verses of Romans 7. I'm just going to read and make a few comments. Paul writes there to the Christians in Rome, "...or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage." that he's saying in Galatians. You died to the law through the body of Christ when He died on the cross so that you would belong to Him in order that you might bear fruit for God, in order that you might live to God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code, right? Here it is. This is gospel. We live by faith in the son of God and in reliance upon the holy spirit, not by the written code anymore. So friends, that concludes the second piece of our our sermon, our time together today. So the first heading was that sin does not come through Christ but by returning to the law The second heading was that in Christ, believers died to the law at the cross and now live by faith in him. The third heading for our consideration today is that any gospel other than faith alone in Christ alone is a rejection of the grace of God. Let me say that again. Any gospel other than faith alone in Christ alone is a rejection of the grace of God. So Put your eyes on verse 21. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Pretty blunt, pretty direct, provocative. (laughs) Again, when you see this term righteousness there in verse 21, you you can almost insert the word justification there, meaning the same thing. And when, like we considered last week, when you think about justification from from this context or any, but certainly as we're making our way through Galatians, we need to be thinking in terms of a declaration of righteousness. To be justified is to be declared righteous. So we thought about last week how we can think in legal and forensic terms. It's like the pronouncement of a judge. Righteous. Innocent. This is not some kind of ethical or moral renewal that's going on here. So Paul's argument is very clear. As he is contended for being justified, being declared righteous by faith in Christ, not by works. He says if righteousness or justification were through the law, then we nullify the grace of God and Christ died for no purpose. So if we introduce any other hopes outside of Christ, if we introduce any other means outside of Christ alone, we reject the grace of God. There is, just to be very clear, there is no ground, by that I just mean what are you going to stand on? There is no ground of our standing before God other than Jesus and His work in our place. None. None. Like we thought about last week, it's a good thing to look at our lives and, and assess growth. It's a good thing to look at our lives and see maturation sanctification happening, it's good that we would do that for each other. Because a lot of times, I was talking with a brother this week, a lot of times we don't even see what's happening in our own lives, right? We need our brothers and sisters to see it. You know, we're growing, we still don't perceive that. You know, the grass is growing, and the only way we know that is because we've got to cut it on the weekend. We can't see it grow. So it's good that we would do that. But that kind of assurance that can come from looking to growth and sanctification and Maturation, that can never be the ground of our standing before God. Can't it can encourage absolutely, it's a good thing, but it's not the ground of our standing before God if we're thinking in absolute terms. It would be insane. I I would be very concerned for you as your pastor if you thought, yeah, I'm I'm growing in the faith big time. I'm confident in that. Like before God, I'm confident in my sanctification. Are you kidding? I'm not. That would be a problem. So the ground of our standing before God is nothing other than Jesus and His work in our place, and that's true now. That was true the day that you were converted. It's true now as you're being grown in the faith, and it will be true before the judgment seat of God at the end of history. So in that sense, present justification. Being declared righteous by faith in Christ really ensures us a final salvation. So if we could, Paul, Paul just reason with him, if we could produce a righteousness of our own, if it was possible for human beings to produce a righteousness of our own by keeping the law, by obeying it, Perfectly or at least good enough or whatever the standard was. If it was possible, then Jesus died for nothing. Why did he come? Why did he live a perfect life? Why did he endure the horrific suffering he endured? Even thinking back to the song I referenced a minute ago. It's like, my gosh, why would he allow the creatures he made to hold him down and nail him to a cross? If human beings could do this on our own. No sense. There's no sense in which he would do that. Jesus came precisely because we cannot produce a righteousness of our own. So, hear me say this. This is important that we think in these terms. So, if we would attribute any of these following things to our works, we've got a problem. If we would attribute to our works even Holy Spirit wrought works, if we attribute our atonement, our pardon, Our justification, our growth in the faith, our sanctification, our righteousness, or our final deliverance, if we attribute any of that to our works, even Holy Spirit-wrought works, we nullify the life and death of Jesus Christ. Full stop. There is no middle ground here. This is an all-or-nothing proposition. That's going to become very clear even later in the letter. He's going to be at least as clear in Galatians chapter 5 as he is right now in chapter 2. That if righteousness could come through the law, Christ died for no purpose. If you want to keep even a little bit of the law, in hoping that you can do a little bit in terms of your standing before God, then Christ is of no use to you at all. It is all of Him or it's nothing. Righteousness, so hear this, righteousness is either. This is either order not both and. Righteousness is either given as a gift by God and that happens through Christ. It's either given as a gift by God or it is attained by human effort. One of the two. One of the two. So if we do not renounce the need to observe the law for righteousness then we are in effect renouncing the cross. If we do not renounce the need to keep the law for righteousness, we are renouncing the cross of Christ. If we could be righteous before God through our own works, then Jesus, He died for nothing. Because if we could be righteous before God through our works, then the law would be sufficient. We don't need Jesus. Moses was enough. The law would be enough to teach us how to live and be saved. We would do it. But that's not the case. I want to help you just, again, get underneath these things. So like, think of today's consideration, think of today's sermon, as we're just trying to dig as deep as we can into the gospel and what it is and what it isn't. And why this is the way that it is. So the reason why... We could never attain righteousness by keeping the law, is because the justification, the righteousness that Paul is talking about here, is not what we would deem sufficient. That's not it. Just because you think it's good enough doesn't mean it actually is. The kind of righteousness and justification that Paul is talking about is absolutely perfect. It's not what human beings deem to be enough, it's perfection. So that's why it's foolish nonsense. It's insane to think that our good works could possibly contribute anything. Actually contribute. That word is key. Contribute anything to our standing before God. Are our good works evidence of the fact we've been born again? Yes. Are our good works a necessary consequence of being born again? Yes. Should we be doing them? Yes. Because they were prepared for us beforehand in Christ that we might walk in them. And it's insane to look to good works as contributing anything to our salvation. Those things are both true. There's no contradiction whatsoever in those two things. God requires, this is an reason with, with me, God requires works that are absolutely righteous if they're going to stand before Him on their own merit. And then the question is, have you ever done a... Perfectly righteous deed? Have you ever done a perfectly righteous deed? No, you have not. <laughs> because they're always just like mine. The best of my, my good works are tainted with sin, they're mixed. They will be, now hear me, this is pretty radical to think about. Your good works and my good works will be commended and honored by God. That's astonishing. But they will be commended and honored by God, not on their own merit. They'll be commended and honored by God because they are genuine. And they're done in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So God looks at that, a a work done by faith in His Son, and He says, that's legit, that's genuine, and I honor that. Not on its own merit. The reason, the reason that many people, and this is heartbreaking to me, the reason that many people in churches all across this land today will leave services in 30 minutes or a few hours if they're on the West Coast, whatever. The reason that they will leave services today thinking that they can earn God's favor through their obedience is because the requirements of God have been so relativized that people think they can actually pull it off. News, news to us you cannot. You flat out can't do it, and neither can they. You cannot accomplish the requirements of God and do them in the way that the Lord requires. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Start there. Have you done that? Have you done that for even 30 seconds today? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, let alone your whole life. No. No none of us have done that we know that that's true we strive for it we pray for it my goodness yes we encourage one another unto that end we do more now maybe than I did a year ago or ten years ago praise God but I've never done that adequately love your neighbor as yourself (laughs) you know I, I haven't even loved my wife as myself this week let alone people outside of the walls of my home, right? Again, we, we strive, we pray, we encourage to that end, but we realize, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this in merit righteousness. Jesus himself, in his ministry on earth, in the Sermon on the Mount, maybe the most famous sermon ever given in the history of the world. What does he do? He first of all says that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. We've thought a lot about what that means. That he came to live it perfectly, fulfill it, fulfill the requirements of God in the place of God's people. But then he starts to unpack the law in the sermon that he gives. He says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. And there are many sitting there listening to him who are probably thinking in external terms. And they're like, I'm good. I'm doing well. Haven't committed adultery. And I'm looking at a room full of many people that maybe you haven't actually slept with someone who's not your spouse. But then Jesus takes the law and preaches the law in all of its holiness and in one sense all of its heart to the heart level. And he says, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you've lusted after anyone, you've committed adultery in your heart. You're a lawbreaker. If you have lusted after someone, you're a lawbreaker. Again, he's not equating lust with adultery. He's not saying they're the same. But he's saying, if you have lusted, you have broken the law. You have not kept it. Do not deceive yourselves into thinking that you're righteous. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. Again, many people are hearing that and they're saying, yeah, I'm doing well. I haven't killed anybody. But then he says, but I tell unto you, that if you've had anger in your heart towards your brother, you're guilty. You are guilty of breaking the law. So by God's grace, nobody in this room has killed anyone this week. Maybe you came close with your, your kids, I don't know. Uh, your coworker. I'm not sure. You're frustrated though. I, I would wager that everybody in this room, though you haven't physically killed someone, is flat out guilty before God of breaking that command. We've all been frustrated this week. We've all been angry this week. And so the point of that, the point of everything I'm saying, is very simple. Flee to Jesus. Run to Christ. Because you've got no hope in and of yourself. You've got no shot if it's about your righteousness. I've got no shot. I'm done. I'm coming up empty. And if, if this Christianity thing is about me being righteous enough to merit God's favor, I'm done. I'm out of here. because it's hopeless. But Christianity is full of hope. Why? Because Christ has accomplished your righteousness in mine, and it is yours simply by faith in him. That That is yes. Glory, hallelujah. Praise God for Jesus Christ. The same one who can preach the law to me and cut me in half pierce me to the heart, cut me in pieces, is the one who graciously puts me back together again and says, it's all right, son, because I've done it for you. Trust me. Praise God that that's true. So, as we bring this to a close, friends, I want us to, to think just a moment together about what the Apostle Paul says in verse 20 in particular. That the Christian life, the life that we now live in the flesh, is live by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And I would tack on to that reliance upon the Holy Spirit. That's where we're heading next week. So we're looking at the verse three verses of Galatians 3 next week about did you begin in the Spirit and you're going to finish by the flesh? No. Right. We're relying upon the Holy Spirit. So you'll, you'll hear me talk a decent amount from the text about the fact that we As Christians, we don't live this kind of law-driven, codified life. That's true. We live a gospel-driven life. We live a grace-driven life. The explicit banner over this era of redemptive history called the New Covenant reads faith in Jesus. It's the banner that flies. Faith in Jesus which is different than faithfulness to Jesus. And hear me out on this. It is good that we would strive for faithfulness. It's just like what we were talking about a moment ago. You are saved by faith in Christ, not your faithfulness to Him. Because if you're saved by your faithfulness to Him, it's not going to go well for you. There's a world of difference in that. And so I pray that, that I'm always clear and that the pastors of the church are always clear when we preach scripture and when we talk about how we should live as believers that we never confuse the issue that it is all driven by grace and it is driven by gospel and we are saved by faith in Jesus not by our faithfulness to him because in the former faith in there's assurance faith in Christ there's hope if I'm saved by my faithfulness that's slavery and bondage and I'm never going to measure up and neither are you. We live by faith in the Son of God. We trust Him. We believe the promises of God through Him. That I am in fact God's child and I'm not His enemy even when I'm struggling with sin. And we rely upon the Holy Spirit, not our own effort. Christianity, if you want, if you want some white knuckle willpower religion, go somewhere else. You're not going to find it here. White-knuckle willpower stuff is for everybody else. What's amazing about Christianity is that the requirements of righteousness according to the Bible are higher than any other religion in the world. Have you ever thought about that? The requirements of righteousness that God has revealed in the Bible are much greater than the requirements of Allah in the Quran. Are much greater than any requirements of any Eastern religion. Why? It's precisely because of what we are just talking about. God applies the law to the heart level. The requirements of righteousness in Christianity are off the charts. But what's amazing about our faith is that that righteousness is provided by Jesus, by grace, through faith in Him applied by the Holy Spirit. So it's not like we're just budging on righteousness here. We're not. We're keeping that standard of perfection. But we understand where it comes from. I live in reliance upon Christ, trusting that He is my righteousness and that He has paid my penalty. And then I rely upon the Holy Spirit of God, not my will, not my strength, not my effort. Though I work, I don't get it confused as to who's really doing this thing. I place my faith, this is a good just kind of summary statement as I was wrestling with this. What does this mean? To live by faith in the Son of God. I place my faith in Jesus. His death for me. His perfect life in my place. The reality of His Spirit living in me. And I live completely on that basis. That informs every single area of my life. That informs my thinking. informs my emotions. It informs my personal interaction. That is what it means to live by faith in the Son of God. And this is the only way to live as unto the Lord. I said this last week, and I'm going to conclude by just reiterating this again today. I'm very aware of even some churches in our own area, and certainly in a broader perspective. I'm very aware that there are churches who will talk about grace, and they'll talk about faith, and the message is, well, it's all grace, so just don't worry about anything else. Like, don't worry about how you live, don't even worry about sin. I don't really want to call it that you know whatever it's okay just believe god loves you and you're good it's not not at all what i'm saying it's not at all what the apostle paul is saying but hear me hear me say this it is flat out impossible that that kind of church that kind of movement is sometimes referred to as hyper grace it's a terrible thing. terrible thing. that it is biblically impossible to overemphasize grace it is impossible The problem in those churches is not an overemphasis of grace. The problem in churches like that is a misunderstanding fundamentally of what grace is. So I I don't even want to call it hyper-grace. This church is hyper-grace. Because if it's not, we don't have any chance. The issue is what do we understand grace to be biblically? Grace is not calling something that's wrong right. Grace is not just overlooking wrong, sweeping it under the rug, as though it doesn't exist. Grace is a way of dealing with something that's really wrong. So That's that's what this is. When we talk about the grace of God in Christ, that's what it is. It's that we really are sinners. We are really sinning today. We want to call it that. We're not going to sweep sin under the rug at CBC. We're going to call it what it is. We're going to correct it. We're going to rebuke it. We're going to understand that grace and gospel, Jesus Christ himself and what he's accomplished for us is what drives this church. It's what drives our lives personally. So we will preach grace from the rooftops and at the same time concern ourselves with how we live that we might honor God. And we will praise the Lord. We will own our sin. We'll own our sin. We'll confess it to each other. We'll ask for forgiveness. We'll forgive people when they sin against us because it's about grace. Right? It's about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The Christian life, friend, is all of grace. I would also say that it's biblically impossible to overemphasize faith. In Jesus, not faith ethereally, whatever that even is. We're not talking about faith in faith in that nonsense. We're talking about faith in Jesus Christ. We're not, like we thought about last week, we're not saved by faith just for the sake of faith. We're saved by the object of our faith. And if we're thinking in those terms, we can't overemphasize it. Faith in Jesus Christ, hope in Jesus Christ, reliance upon Him in the power of the Holy Spirit. The last thing I would say is that it's biblically impossible to overemphasize reliance upon the Holy Spirit of God. So of course we want to talk about, hey, like discipline, that's good. You fighting sin, that's good. You working and striving and setting up boundaries and doing all these things that you might live a life that is pleasing unto the Lord and that you might be used of Him. It's good. But we never for one second confuse the issue that we're doing this in our own power. We can exhort one another to godliness and we can exhort one another to service. We can exhort one another to love. And we can understand that it's all empowered by the grace of God that we've been shown in Christ. And it is ultimately accomplished by the power of His Spirit, not our own effort. So these things, they matter to to the biblical writers, they matter to God, they matter to me, they matter to your pastors, that we would understand these things rightly so that we never move beyond the gospel. We're being changed by the gospel, being motivated by the gospel, and we're being saved by the gospel. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You for Your plan of redemption that is saving us. Father, we thank You that You willingly gave Your Son and that it was the will of God the Father to crush Him. We praise You for that. And Lord Jesus, we thank You very personally that You love us and that You gave Yourself for us, that You were not forced, You were not compelled, Your life was not taken, but You did it, You gave it for the glory of Your Father and because You loved us. So we pray, Lord, that You would keep us in the faith, continue to give us faith in Christ That we might be with him, that we might be with you, that we might see Jesus as he is. And behold his glory that you gave him before the foundation of the world because you loved him. We pray for your help in living this Christian life and we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.